But back to influencers, it is a key part of our strategy. We are definitely spending marketing dollars on influencers. We have really been doing a program of influencer screenings, and each one has to be curated with the right influencer. We are creating atmospheres that give that full picture. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Rebecca Polly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro, the Pulse of Theatrical Exhibition, joined here for our 201st episode by my co-host Chad Kennert, analyst at Box Office Pro, and Russ Fisher of Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. Guys, how you doing? Doing good. Yeah, thanks to you both for filling in for me uh, last week as I was at Show East and not, I think I was yeah literally on a plane on my way uh, to Show East in Miami. My first time at that conference, uh, a great time. Our feature interview this week is actually with the winner of the Coca-Cola Empowerment Award at Show East, uh, Rebecca Stein, who's the Vice President of Studio Relations and U.S. Marketing at Showcase Cinemas. She has a lot of really interesting things to say on the evolution of, of marketing and, and uh, of using influencers to drum up enthusiasm for films and, and tapping into youth audiences. We're going to be definitely talking about the power of youth audiences later on in this podcast episode. A lot to talk about uh, with regards to the, I think it's fair to say, unanticipated success of Five Nights at Freddy's from Universal. But before we get to that, Russ, any updates on the sag after front with regarding the strike, the possible ending thereof? So uh, both parties in the strike negotiation met, and they met through the weekend, and those negotiations were evidently somewhat productive. They concluded yesterday evening, that would be Sunday, October 29th, with both parties, I think, agreeing to separate and take most of the day today, Monday, October 30th, to kind of like sort out what had been proposed, what had been put on the table, and they're going to reconvene. I know that SAG-AFTRA sent out an email to members, which says over the course of the weekend, we have discussed all open proposals, including artificial intelligence with the AMPTP. Both parties will be working independently Monday and re-engage on scheduling at the end of the day. So, you know, hopefully both sides are going to take in everything that was discussed over the last few days. And, you know, with any luck, they'll be back at the table sometime this week. So this is certainly better news than the last time they sat down when everybody just, you know, when the AMPTP basically seemed to kind of flip the table as they got up and left the door. So, you know, this is better news than than last time. It's good news. It's not the news we want, which is the end of the strike. But, you know, maybe we're getting there. Yeah, at least uh, at least the negotiations are are happening. Maybe we'll hear some some better news between when we record this on Monday and when the podcast comes out on Thursday. But of course, as the strike is not over at this point, sadly, um, and thus actors cannot under the rules of the strike under the rules of SAG-AFTRA cannot promote their films. We are continuing to see a number of release date changes kind of from a variety of studios. I know that there there have been some reported on the Disney side. Yeah, Elio, the next film from Pixar, has moved from March 1st, 2024 to June 13th, 2025. 
My initial reaction to that was wondering if 2024 would be the first year since 2014 without a new Pixar movie. But then uh, realized that Inside Out 2 is coming in June 2024. So uh, we'll just have that as the new Pixar movie for 24 and then Elio for the new, as the new movie for 25, which actually I think is, is better for Pixar overall. They've had years where they did two movies uh, and it seems like the single movie per year release schedule is probably in everyone's best interests. Yeah, definitely give them uh, give them a little bit of, of time to miss you. That seems to be the uh, the tactic, uh, or, or at least part of the reasoning behind one of Paramount's release changes. Uh, they are moving the eighth Mission Impossible film, which was supposed to come out in June of next year, to May of 2025. We're also hearing that it's going to have a new subtitle, like it's it's not going to be. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2. Those titles are so dang unwieldy. (laughs) I'm glad that they're changing it. I mean, I think the Part 1, Part 2, we've seen a couple of different franchises initially announce Part 1 and Part 2. I mean, Avengers Endgame originally was going to be Avengers Infinity War Part 2. They had announced those movies as a Part 1 and Part 2. The second and third Spider-Verse movies were originally announced as a Part 1 and a Part 2 scenario. I think it's very smart to move away from that naming convention. And frankly, it's surprising that Macquarie and Cruz managed to keep that (laughs) convention for the first part of Dead Reckoning because I think it, I mean, as an audience member, yeah, you want to go in thinking you're going to get a whole experience, even if you know it's part of an ongoing franchise. And I think the part one, part two thing just tells you like, nope, this isn't going to be whole. And so I think it's smart to move away from the part two, uh, with Mission Impossible, and it makes you wonder if Part One is going to be retroactively renamed. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if like audience notes or reaction or reception with with Dune had anything to do with you know, being like maybe we want to give these separate titles and not go with a Part One, Part Two. But that's entirely speculation on my part. So, and the thing is, like the original Dune wasn't released as Part One; it was just released as Dune. You know, and then when Part Part One comes up at the end, you're like. Oh, yeah. come on. Yeah. <laughs> and so Dune Part 2, I understand why they've kept that because it is explicitly broken up into two parts. But you go back and look at the way Dune was released. It was not positioned as a part one. They were like, no, you're going to see a whole movie. And then, uh, and it speaks of, to how well people liked Dune, that that wasn't a stumbling block, you know, not a big enough one to impede its success, at least. Chad, we have had a couple uh, a couple other release date changes, though. I believe nothing quite as large. The, the Mission Impossible 8 moving uh, about a year has, has been the, the biggest release date change we've seen over the past week or so. But what else are we looking at? I know there's, uh, there's some other stuff from Paramount. We had uh, a few Universal changes, Warner Brothers changes, and then a, a new film announcement from Universal Bloomhouse. Right. So If, which stands for Imaginary Friends, it's John Krasinski's next film, originally scheduled for May 24th of 2024. That's actually moved up a couple days to May 17th, 2024. And then speaking of John Krasinski, the next Quiet Place film, which is actually a prequel, A Quiet Place Day One, was previously scheduled for March 8th, 2024. And that one's moving back a bit to June 28th, 2024. And then we also have this untitled animated SpongeBob SquarePants film. I feel like they previously released a title for this. Now I guess it's back to untitled. 
<laughs> yeah, it was something about a, a dead man's chest or pirates, something or other. Previously dated May 23rd, 2025. That one's going to Christmas season, December 19th, 2025. And then we do have a very small, thankfully small change from Warner Brothers moving Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom. Don't worry, it's still coming out this December. It is moved from December 20th to the 22nd. So is that like a, a, a Wednesday to a Friday? That's correct. Okay. And it had been the 22nd originally, and then they pulled it forward to Wednesday, and now they're pushing it back to Friday again. I'm sure there is a strategy. Right. <laughs> Make up your mind, guys. Yeah, I'm, we'll see how that goes out. Also, another another title change from Warner Brothers, this film called, it used to be called The Wise Guys, starring Robert De Niro and Deborah Messing, used to be uh, on, on uh, February of 24, now will be November of 24, now is titled Alto Nights. We were discussing this a bit before recording. I have I hear Alto Nights. I have no idea what sort of film this is. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's Barry Levinson movie, so a prestige director. It's De Niro playing two roles. Basically, he's playing two rival mob bosses in New York in the 40s and 50s. So almost playing into stereotype of past De Niro roles. But like, you know, seeing him play two roles in the same movie, that's kind of cool. Wise Guys certainly tells you what this movie right is right off. I hear Alto like, Nights. Like it's a bit on the nose, yeah. but it's, it's on the like, nose, yeah. but, but you kind of have to be on the note. You know, it's funny, like, you know, on a lot of social media, I saw people kind of mocking the main posters for Killers of the Flower Moon, like, oh, these are not very artful. And then there were a couple more artful posters that came out and it's like, this is how you sell a movie. I'm like, no, the ugly poster with all the faces pasted on it is how you sell a movie. That's what gets people to go. And it's kind of the same mm -hmm. thing. Like, I th If you want a poster to like sell for $250 down the line on the secondary market, that's when you have yeah, the, that's fancy, what the art. Like, the very that's artistic. what the art poster is for. And that's cool, but that doesn't put butts in seats. In the same way here, I'm like, I don't know. I hear Alto Nights. I don't know what that is. We'll have to wait a little bit longer to find out what one Alto Night is, never mind two. The final bit of news we have on the release calendar front, there will be a uh, sequel to the horror film The Black Phone, which came out, I believe that was 2021, 22. Time has had no meaning these past few years, but it was recent, and it's getting a sequel from Universal Pictures and, and Bloomhouse. That film will be coming out on June 27th, 2025, a wide release. I mean, uh, it's uh, 2025, years down the line from here, but I think given the news that we have to discuss this week, box office-wise, it's a fair bet that it's going to make a, a, at least a good chunk of money because Bloomhouse has had another success courtesy of the video game adaptation Five Nights at Freddy's debuted simultaneously in theaters and on Peacock, which is Universal's, obviously, which is their streaming service, made, I think, more money than, than anyone really, really expected it to, opening to $78 million on around 3,600 screens. Though to say, to say like, that anybody expected it to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the caveat on there. Shout out to our VP of sales, Patricia Martin, because her, her son, Patrick, back in September, was talking about how, like, Guys, no, you don't understand. Like, this is a big deal. He like he's 19 and he's like, this is a such a this is a, such a big deal for people of my age group. Like, you don't know. So many people are gonna show up for this. And I was kind of like, okay, I don't know, it's day and date. How much uh, you know, are, are people really gonna come out and see it in theaters or are they gonna 
stay at home and watch it on Peacock. And they came out in droves. Chad, can you give us a little a little rundown of some of the numbers here uh, domestically and internationally and, and what kind of records got broken? Because there were a lot of them. Yeah, domestically, it opened to 78 million, uh, 58% male, 80% under 25. So that youth audience that you mentioned, 21,000, over 21,000 per screen average there. And then internationally, it opened in 60 markets at 52.6 million, Mexico, UK, and Brazil, the top three there. But yeah, it holds the record now as the number one Halloween weekend release of all time, which previously the record holder there was Puss in Boots, ironically, which held that spot for 12 years and kept all the horror films away. But Freddy's has come in as the top Halloween weekend film there. Highest opening for any PG-13 horror film. I'm, I'm sure it it being PG-13 was a definite factor in it, it bringing so many people, specifically so many young people out over the opening weekend. I mean, it had like a 21 thousand dollar per theater average domestically which is which is nuts it's it's insane it's it's the the biggest uh bloomhouse global opening of all time the third largest debut for any horror film ever behind only it and it chapter two and we also hear from universal uh, with regards to streaming numbers on peacock that it's tracking to have the biggest opening ever for a film on peacock and that it has been the most watched and most subscription driving content title. As always, any anything to do with streaming records or streaming numbers, grain of salt, because we don't have those numbers from any sort of outside source. But yeah, a ton of people uh, got out to see this one. It definitely, uh, Patricia Martin's son was proven right here. Chad, you caught this one. What did you think? I think it's going to be an entry horror movie for the current generation of tweens and preteens. Unless you're in that age range, it's not particularly scary. And if you've ever seen a horror movie, there's nothing necessarily new. There's a long setup that doesn't really make sense, but it's a fun Halloween watch. And especially if you're at a screening that has that younger demo. I'll say though, the thing about this movie is it's not scary, but it's really grim. Like it's a bleak movie and it's it like kind of shockingly so in some ways i would just say yeah almost shockingly so it's i think i expected more scares and i didn't really expect the degree to which it's just like a really kind of ugly worldview and it reflects a lot of things which i think horror does very well and it, it just like in that i think it there's something to this movie even though as has been said it's not really a film for you know a 30 and over audience and if you don't know the property that it's based on, you might be, if not lost, just left wondering kind of what's happening. I was pretty amused. There's a point towards the end of the movie during a major set piece where a bunch of stuff happens. And I found myself thinking like, what is going on exactly as one of the characters in the movie says, what's going on? And uh, <laughs> so there's a little self-awareness there. Yeah. For those of us with memories of childhood birthdays at Chuck E. Cheese, I felt like the abandoned children's pizza palace was somehow oddly nostalgic. There's probably a good metaphor in there for adults who've neglected their inner child. I would disagree with that completely. I think the movie explicitly tells you that nostalgia is a prison and that it will destroy you. Like is that, is the, <laughs> that is the movie for me. Which is interesting because I, I think there's a there's a case to be made that nostalgia is a 
if not a big reason, at least a substantial reason why this movie made so much. I mean, the, the original Five Nights at Freddy's, it was a video game. It's been a couple, but the franchise started in 2014. And I know this is a movie, like this is an adaptation that has long been in the works. It's been an adaptation where fans of the franchise were like, I don't know how they're going to adapt this. There's no like storyline per se in, in the video games. So it feels like people maybe who grew up playing this series, we're super excited to see it and to make an event of it by going to see it in theaters because of nostalgia. I mean, I'm sure that played a factor with people across all age groups just going out in, in droves to see the Super Mario Brothers movie earlier this year. We saw it uh, a few years back with Minions and the, the Gentle Minions phenomenon. People like who grew up with this franchise deciding, oh, we're going to dress up in suits and we're going to go and we're going to make this a big event. So I think that is a, a huge takeaway from this title and from its success. And, and we definitely need to look at what Gen Z is feeling nostalgic about <laughs> at any given time. Mm-hmm. Another takeaway, I mean... Russ, this is the third time recently, I believe, that there has been a Bloomhouse Universal collab that has come out day and date in October. It clearly works. Well, I mean, this works a lot better than Halloween Kills or Halloween Ends. And I think it speaks to the level of interest in this movie. People, as we've said here already, were really interested in this film. I think it also speaks to the relative lack of saturation Peacock has in the streaming marketplace. You know, Peacock is just not a very powerful force out there. So yeah, it says a lot more to me about where Peacock stands than it does about you know, anything else. But clearly the audience wanted an experience with this and they went and got it. I'm curious to see how it holds, if it holds. It's also worth noting that this is uh, the third major movie in the past year that really deals with child abduction in an explicit like text-based way that was a thing in the black phone. It's a thing clearly in Sound of Freedom and now in Five Nights at Freddy's. So that's not the trend I expected to see. Yeah, three times, uh, three times is, is, is a trend there. I think I think definitely what this film shows us is, um, you know, streaming and, and as, as we've said before a lot on this podcast, streaming and theatrical can definitely coexist. The fact that people like to watch movies on streaming platforms, even if maybe Peacock isn't necessarily at the top of people's lists. It doesn't mean that theatrical success is outside the realm of possibility. So, and Bloomhouse has cracked that formula. Five Nights at Freddy's is their 19th domestic number one opener. Moving on down the box office chart, Taylor Swift to the Eras Tour was second at the box office, decreased 56% to 14.7 million. Based on estimates, it's it's closing right in on 150 million domestically. It's, it's at like 149.3 and those numbers might change a little bit in either direction uh, after we record this on, on Monday afternoon when the actuals come in. But yeah, as with Five Nights at Freddy's, definitely definitely an instance of people wanting to go and have this communal experience. Number three on the list, in its second week, Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, down 61% to $9 million for a domestic total of $40 million. I had had tickets to see this on Sunday, planned to see it, and then I found out my mom fell and broke her hip and had to have surgery, so I did not see it. But oh no, <laughs> she's 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 fine apparently. But I'm I'm I didn't get my Scorsese fix this weekend, so I'll have to duck out at some point. And then speaking of Angel Studios, number four after Death opening weekend, five million on 
around 2,600 screens. This is a documentary about various people who have had near-death experiences. Chad, we were were trying to figure out before recording, like, would this be the highest grossing doc of the year so far? And Mm, does mm -hmm. a concert film count as a doc? Because if so, you have Taylor Swift and you have the reissue of Stop Making Sense. But I think regardless of whether, like, it has that particular record at this point, a uh, number four opening for a documentary is very good here. Angel Studios has found a lot of success. If we say, looking at the results of Five Nights at Freddy's, that we can't discount or underestimate the youth audience. With Angel Studios, we can't discount or underestimate the faith-based audience. We've seen this time and time again, particularly this year. And uh, Angel Studios really has, uh, they also announced in this past week, they've launched this industry promotions fund with the Cinema Foundation, which is affiliated with NATO. They do National Cinema Day. So this fund is designed to engage in, you know, various initiatives to drive people to the cinema. They're definitely a smaller distributor that has had a lot of success really working working closely with exhibitors to drum up support. I know that oftentimes the faith-based audience, like they don't tend to buy tickets in advance. It's not so much like a pre-sale heavy genre, but working with exhibitors and, and, and doing promo, they are getting those walk-up audiences. And then closing out the top five, we are back to the horror genre with Exorcist Believer earning $3.1 million, uh, bringing its total to just a smidge under $30 million. Chad, what, did, what was out to limited release? Because we're, we're getting into the prestige award season time of the year. Exactly. And Priscilla opens November 3rd. It was open in limited four theaters and brought in 133,000 in New York and LA from May 24 there. And then the holdovers, focus features, and six theaters in New York and LA brought in 200,000. That's expanding to 60 theaters across 20 markets next week. And then we'll eventually go wide on November 22nd. So definitely, I've heard a lot of good things about the holdovers uh, that, that make me excited to to see that one. Uh, mm, ditto, me too. Ditto Priscilla uh, about Priscilla Presley from Sofia Coppola and A24. Our long range forecasting for that has it opening in the three to eight million dollar range for a domestic total of ten to twenty seven million total. Definitely not huge blockbuster numbers, but nobody really ever, ever expected that to happen. So yeah, this is, this is one that I'm pumped to see. Well, uh, thank you, Russ and Chad, for joining us this week to break down the success of Five Nights at Freddy's. And hopefully by the time we record next week, we'll have uh, some positive news with regard to the strike. After this short break, we'll cut to our feature, uh, an interview with Rebecca Stein, VP of Studio Marketing at National Amusements, specifically their U.S. arm, Showcase Cinemas. Be right back. Rebecca, thanks so much uh, for for joining me on our our first double Rebecca episode of the Box Office Podcast, I think. It'll be a spinoff soon. We'll see. We'll see how I do. Rebecca squared. Yeah. So... Next year, that's your 25th year with National Amusements, right? You're coming up on like the big round anniversary. Yeah, I think in February I hit 25 years, something that uh, 
you know, certainly when I started, I would have never imagined, but all in all, I think it's gone by pretty fast. Mm-hmm. How did it start? I mean, how did you end up with National Amusements? Yeah, give me a little bit of your, your background. Yeah, the long story short is that I was working, I worked in a couple of different PR firms in Boston, and I was young and really had to improve my writing skills. And I did a course at Emerson College in writing for press releases. And that class that I took, I think it was on Thursday evenings, there was a group of four or five people from National Amusements who were sent from the publicity department to work on their writing skills. Oh, And class with these people. And when I learned that they were doing essentially PR and marketing, which we really didn't call it in those days, it was more publicity. When I learned that they were doing that for the movies, I knew I had to connect and stay in touch. And I did that. I, you know, I became friendly with them and um, just wanted to know whenever there was a job opening. And lo and behold, probably a few months later, they were looking for an additional entry level publicity person. And while the interview process took a lengthy period, it all worked out. So uh, that's great. That's the story. Yeah, 99. That was a good year for movies. That was like a really good year for movies. What came out that year? That was like The Matrix was that year. A lot of good stuff to market. Yeah. I'd have to look it up. Although at the time when I first started, we had an in-house agency as well as doing our own corporate programs and marketing. I was doing some field publicity for New Line Cinema and for Paramount at the time within Four Walls kind of thing. And now I won't remember exactly the name, but it had a running with brides scene with Chris O'Donnell. Yes. This is not good. I can visualize visualize the poster. Exactly. Well, we were charged with hunting down as many cheap wedding dresses as we could and getting, you know, brides to run through the streets of Boston. And at the time I was also working on Flint, Michigan field publicity. And, you know, we had to execute these real grand stunts, which were part of, of how movies were marketed on a regular basis at that point. And uh, I think during our discussion, we'll come full circle on that because it's certainly something that we're trying to do more these days. It feels like, I mean, that's one of the things I always really like about going to the shows and and talking to people who've been in the industry back when there was kind of more of that fun stuff or that more kind of out there. Someone was saying, I don't remember who it was, but when Soylent Green came out, they did like a green icy, not realizing what (laughs) the movie was going to turn out to be. But I mean, what changed to make that not so much a thing anymore? Was it just like the internet kind of made everything more, you know, it's more effective and efficient to kind of sit behind a desk and work at it from that perspective? Because I I do feel like we've lost some of that a little bit. Well, so I think what happened was, yeah, a choice of marketing dollars, right? So you could do a big stunt that cost a lot of money at the end of the day, or you could start to target people in a digital way and spend the dollars that way. And I think we've seen that change with all, you know, marketing across all platforms and all industries. The thing about our industry that as that 
changed, we lost a little bit of that, a little bit of the magic. I mean, there's always the magic of the movies, but a little bit of the magic. It's the showmanship that you had back in. Since I've kind of grown up at National Amusements, Showcase Cinemas, that was always a part of our DNA, this showmanship. You know, from from a theater opening, we would have celebrities and exciting things happening all, you know, for a couple weeks around around the openings to creating experiences beyond the screen so that the theater is way more than the screen. I love that now, and I know we're going to get into it (laughs) much, but I, I am super excited to talk about this stuff because I think it is where we need to be thinking. It's very much how we are reacting now and marketing now. We'll talk more about that. How uh, those early days at National Amusements, I mean, you'd, you'd never worked in the cinema space before, you know, what was that early process like of, you know, do you have any mentors who could kind of, because it can be a, a pretty insular industry. Absolutely. And it's very interesting that you pose it the question that way, because it was Elaine Purdy who hired me and she grew up in the business. Her Both her parents had, had met in the business and in Boston in, in the movie business and had worked for uh, General Cinema and she had worked for studios. And anyway, so she hired me. And I mean, that was the most fortunate thing in so many ways. I almost, I will restrain myself, almost get emotional just thinking about how fortunate and fortuitous it was to connect with Elaine, who certainly has become one of my bestest friends, but also one of the strongest mentors that I've had. So Elaine, even though she, you know, knew it all front and back, she's just such a caring person. And she really took me under her wing very early and trained me in a way that we were just doing it together in in some ways. She, you know, early on pushed me and gave me confidence and didn't make me feel like an outsider, which did happen a little bit within the department to some extent because people knew this stuff and everyone seemed to be in it for so long. Even the young people had already been in it. But Elaine's warmth and patience, and certainly I came in feeling a little cocky out of these PR firms, but I was a, I was a kid, you know, and she would call me out on some of that behavior, which I needed. And thank goodness that she did that. But she also put a lot of trust in me and let me soar and made sure that if it was something that I was doing that got the recognition for it, she let me shine. And I have you know, I definitely have taken so many pages out of her book as I lead a team now. So I can't, you know, Elaine has, she in general just taught me even to be more creative, to push myself. And she taught me true kindness, which um, is actually just more effective in life. Yeah. Just don't be a jerk. You'd be surprised how well that works sometimes. (laughs) A lot of people, um, don't realize how well that works. Mm. Looking back at like the period that she did encourage you to go out and, and try new things and just these strange, like wacky ideas, like running a whole bunch of brides in old ladies wedding dresses, like down the street. Did any campaigns stick out for you or that you were like, oh, I'm so excited to work on this. And you really, really hit 
Yeah. Well, I will say that pretty early on, you know, refer now where showcase cinema is really to mm-hmm. on a on a day- showcase less showcase UK in, within industry will for, be forever known as as uh, national amusements. But I'll refer to us probably as showcase just because that's how we are known to our customers. And shortly after joining the publicity team there, I became a young mom and was really in the kids space. You know, it always depends at what stage of life you are is how your your lens is on. And I knew, I started to know very quickly the importance of moms and kids and movie going. And so I wanted to, we were, we were starting to do stuff then with loyalty and our star pass loyalty program was growing, but it seemed that there was this other market and it made a lot of sense to get kids and families in and in young. And so at that time I had brought to her an idea of a kid's movie club and a kid's loyalty program, which is called the Popcorn Club. And it was quickly embraced, like, yeah, go do it, go do it. And um, I had to learn a lot fast and work with IT and work with, you know, concessions. It was was the first program that I was kind of on my own and had to work with all these new teams, you know, fast forward 20 years later and the popcorn club is going strong. So that is something I'm very proud of. It's a program that's very effective and that all our studio partners have come to count on too for us reaching a young family movie going audience. And, you know, that's another thing I could talk about for a long time because I'm kind of, you know, I'm pretty passionate about, but we have a very captive audience in these members and they show up and we give them great perks and experiences and things like that. But it started a long time ago and, uh, you know, now it's in the great hands of my team and, um, you know, I want to, I want to acknowledge some of my you know, team, I have Rachel Lule, who works with me and who really makes all these things keep going and, and come to life. And, you know, it's important to, I mean, I have a big team now and they're incredible, but uh, just, just as Elaine did for me, I want to recognize them for sure. So the things that we did and continue to do from a community focus, they always have kind of this doing good angle. And that's where I, I really want to acknowledge, you know, you, you asked me about mentors and I've had the real privilege of working for Sherry Redstone for, you know, all those 25 years. And what Sherry taught me and has showed me is giving back. I mean, she's taught me a lot of things that I, you know, watched her in business, which is something that to have been like a a re- that's a perk at landing at national amusements you get to absolutely absolutely and so there are a ton of examples i could give about everything that sherry has showed me by example something i have had the privilege of working on with her are our community efforts and giving back and through all that work i was able to start the showcase for good programming. And even when early on we talked about a kids program, it 
made better sense to have reading attached to it because what we had learned um, with a partner at the time is that reading for children slipped during the summer months. And so it was something that we could say to the communities. We partnered with all the libraries that we were not only offering kids this fun movie experience, but it was to encourage summer reading. So that was certainly, you know, giving back to the community. Our programs like holiday classics, where people for the, their price of admission during, during the holiday months are a canned good for a local food pantry. And we've built from there. So our Showcase for Good programming, which the sensory program falls under that a little bit, but we also feel that's just in general important important offering for so many who have sensory issues, you know, these days so much more aware, right? So but we, we do partner under Showcase for Good with local nonprofit organizations in our communities and it's some of the best, most proud work that I get to do these days. So are you from Boston? Is that where you grew up? Or what was the, the Boston cinema that you would go to as a kid? Yes, I have to admit, I have not gone far from home. I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, and I'm just probably six minutes down the road, kind of from Newton. But so my two local movie theaters, and it was two because they were close together and they didn't play day and date. So it depended on who was playing what. So one theater was the General Cinema in Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, where now we proudly have a theater, Superlux Theater, which I can talk to you a little about in a minute. But then the other theater was a National Amusements. It was the um, Circle Cinema in Cleveland Circle, which is kind of Boston, Brookline, Massachusetts. So yeah, and so interesting. So my earliest movie memory, which I actually confirmed with my mom just a little while ago when I knew that question was coming. My earliest memory is seeing Pete's Dragon. She said it was at the Chestnut Hill General Cinema, and that was 1977, so I was about four years old, and I remember it. Like, I remember feeling small, but that big screen, you know, just being in awe of that big screen. And I loved that movie. In fact, when my kids were little, I was like, you have to see Pete's Dragon. And Underappreciated, it's time. <laughs> I did show it to them because it stuck with me. And, you know, I don't know that it translated as, as well for them. But that was my first movie and I was four. And then the other memory that popped into my mind that also was at that general cinema was Annie. When the movie Annie opened, which was early 80s, I think probably like 80, well, it's probably like 1982 because I'm now associating it with something, but they had a Sandy. I don't know if it was actually Sandy the dog, but they had a Sandy the dog. Oh, and so I remember waiting in line and, and they had Sandy the dog there, whether, you know, I'm sure there were many, many Sandys, but yeah, so that's an early childhood movie memory that is pretty cool. And that's why you have to get the kids in early because, you know, there's, that's I don't know, it. you get a little cynical growing up or, you know, less receptive to just kind of the magic of purely living in an experience because you don't have any worries. You get fed, you have a place to live. You're fine. And it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of, do you feel like we're losing that a bit? I mean, 
Well, here's the thing. That's what we are working to do with Popcorn Club. It really, I mean, we have members who are two years old. You know, we encourage parents to sign their kids up early. There's perks, there's, you know, and there's events. Like, you know, we're working with Paramount now on some early screenings of Paw Patrol. And we're inviting Paw members to see it early. But it not just be the movie. Beforehand, in the lobby, we're bringing in some children's music makers and doing some crafts and we'll have some fun food so that it really touches those sweet points for kids and it sticks and that hopefully you know someday when they're getting interviewed by you they'll remember those uh moments so it's good before i was at box office i did more like the b2c consumer facing entertainment journalism and and so much of that has gone towards influencers i mean press screenings yeah. always are like, they're mostly influencers. And I feel yeah. like it's something that the industry is maybe a little slow to catch up. I mean, I just remember when the Gentleminions thing happened and nobody knew it was coming. You started the the National Amusements TikTok. I, I don't even know how TikTok works, so I can't judge anybody else for not knowing how TikTok works, but... <laughs> Yeah, no, we really, I mean, that was, that was a pivotal moment because that, that did just come and then we kind of learned about it. But quickly after that happened, we knew that we had to be on TikTok. We're having great success with, uh, you know, we're, we now generate content every week that is, you know, we've set aside time. We have people who are on this. I mean, it's obviously all so- social media is um, so key right now and keeps us connected in a different way and gives each theater circuit as you follow everybody. It's giving us voices that are differentiated from each other, which is nice too. But back to influencers, it is a key part of our strategy. We are definitely spending marketing dollars on influencers. We have really been doing a program of influencer screenings and each one has to be curated with the right influencer. We are creating atmospheres that give that full picture. So I know that I had sent you some pictures from our Barbie influencer event. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was no stone unturned, you know, from obviously the custom cocktail menu that looks exactly the part, you know, of the, of the movie. It was perfect. And everybody did so much, I mean, to different degrees and different people have different resources and everything. But if we're seeing a movie early and loving it as a team, we want to get behind it. And that happened recently with Gran Turismo. We all loved it. And it was reaching out to Anne Elizabeth Atzoni and saying, I want to get behind this and we want to get influencers in because their reach that we've been building and building our lists of of influencers is the best we can do right now. So, I mean, they came in, there was custom drink menus, everything had, you know, black and white checkered flags. And they're there with the cameras and the rigs and the, you know. We had a tire changing station, which, you know, where they picked up their drinks. And it just, I mean, we are really into the party planning, all the details to make sure that they leave with a full experience of what it mean to go out to the movies. That was a black and white party. You know, we saw everybody come out in pink for Barbie. There, we're giving people reason to dress up for the movies. 
I mean, it's, it's after the last few years, like you need a you need a reason to dress up. You need that little prod after years of living in your pajamas. Like it, it it's bringing back some of that, some of the showmanship. Yeah. So we are all about it. It's a big part of the strategy. And now what is happening is people are asking us, how do we get on your list? That is transcending the air a bit. It's great. So what we're building with our influencers in all different markets and all kind of different lanes and genres is fantastic. So are you working with like hyper kind of local people for each theater? Because I know like just find influencers, you know, people don't always necessarily know where to start with a lot of this tech stuff. Or are you just looking at people who are like that is their local theater? Yeah, their local theater or area. You know, um, a lot of our influencers kind of cover, you know, bigger markets or New England region, but it depends. And we have a couple uh, national influencers who we've kind of lucked into to some extent who are showcase moviegoers, and they're happy to help us. So that's been as well. Yeah, well, we're, we're having a good time with influencers, and they love what we're providing. So it's been a good two-way street. I feel like Gentleman Yens is chapter one of like, oh, God, there's this whole world, and we kind of don't know what it's about or, or, or how to, you know, you don't want to kind of storm your way in without knowing what you're doing and, and look ridiculous or anything like that. And then you have Barbie, which is like chapter two, and it just felt like lightning in a bottle. And I think everybody as an industry needs to look to what happened with Barbie and try to replicate it as best we can. I mean, a movie like Barbie, not only do you have a superpower like Warner Brothers behind it, but Mattel was behind that too. And it, infiltrated. I've never seen anything like it from a marketing perspective. There was no company that didn't want to attach to all the like pink everything. It was and even after the movie came out, it wasn't like, okay, opening weekend, Monday, over. Like it felt like in terms of really capturing the marketing and it, that's that was the training wheels run. And now the training wheels are off a little bit. I believe that when you have someone also like Margot Robbie who she was everywhere and did an amazing job for that movie. You know, we saw it with Tom Cruise for Top Gun. He was key. So I do hope that from a studio perspective, that is being recognized as really important as people look at how these movies are being marketed. We need to make sure that the talent is really part of strategy in a, in a big way. Like it's star power. Send, send people out. You had like John yeah, it, going out and during quiet place and everything. Like, like he's another great example, but it's beyond just the star power. It's that these people, their passion for their project comes out. And I think that's important. Like they do it at CinemaCon to get the industry excited. And now the do it like on a more micro level. We all feel, even though we're in it, right? We go to CinemaCon and we're recharged. We feel we're part of something so much bigger. And every filmmaker says, I'm making this for the big screen. And that's another important thing that I've always, uh, you know, the past several years been talking to studio partners that we need to be thanking our audience and telling our audience the same thing. 
So I also, you know, encourage adding that message to every movie. Thank the moviegoer, whether it's the talent or the filmmaker. You know, we need to appreciate the moviegoer and understand that they're not hearing the Kool-Aid that we're drinking ourselves because no doubt all of it is part of this magic. You have to nurture it. It's not just gonna... Exactly. And I think the recipe is there, but we need to pay attention to it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Box Office Podcast. We will be back next Thursday for all of the box office and news from the cinema exhibition community. The Box Office Podcast is co-produced by Box Office Pro, the Box Office Company, and Record Edit Podcast. If you like the podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks again. <laughs>